Welcome, everybody, to the Celebrity Hour podcast. I'm Brian Kluger, and we have a fantastic show today. We have a legendary, an amazing, an intercontinental champion <laughs> of music, famous, iconic instruments from around the world, and a musician, composer of film and TV, Nathan Barr. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Brian, for that incredibly enthusiastic intro. <laughs> oh, it's the WWE coming out of me, I think. <laughs> we'll get into pro wrestling later. But first, Nathan, again, welcome to the show. For those of you who don't know who Nathan Barr is, he's really one of the most talented musicians out there working. You've heard his music in tons of television and film, such as True Blood, Hemlock Grove, the most recent Netflix show, Halston, amazing. Uh, and then he's worked with Eli Roth, Alan Ball a whole lot. It's, we're going to get into that. But just like in the movie, The Sound of Music, we've got to start at the very beginning. <laughs> so, Nathan, where did it all begin for you in music? Was it something you heard on the radio? Were you in Japan living? Did you hear something mm -hmm. on the street? Where, where, did it, where did it all begin? Yeah. Um, yeah, it began with two really supportive parents who were uh, uh, musical themselves. My mom was a pianist and we were living in Japan and she played Kodo. She started playing the Kodo there. And so um, I sort of got introduced to the idea of non-Western music uh, while living in Japan. And yeah, and, and, and also Western music because she got me started on Suzuki violin. And um, so, yeah, it was just they were very... Uh, engaged in the idea of me becoming a musician, um, not a composer at that point, obviously, but uh, I, I had music and musical instruments in my hands uh, and in my, in my mind very young and just really, um, I mean, I think we've all seen kids and how they react to music. And it's, it's just, it's such a cool, um, it has such a cool effect on, on the, the brain of a child, the emotions of a child, like my little niece who's five, uh, will come in and hear music and just like, you know, totally rocks her world. So it's, I was, I was that kid as well. That's kind of where it started. That's where it started. So do you remember the first instrument you picked up and the first song you learned on this instrument? I mean, it's so, uh, it's so derivative. I hate to even say it, but like I picked up a guitar when I was 11 and the only thing I wanted to learn was the thing that you're not allowed to play in a guitar shop, which is Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> and sometimes my Zeppelin poster back over there. Uh, and then cello wise, you know, it was probably the G major Bach cello suite, the prelude, which is the, probably the most famous piece ever written for the cello. So it was like those two things that were super inspiring to me. And um, yeah, we all start like by imitating imitating the greats. And so for me sitting down, whether it was Jimmy Page or, Yo-Yo Ma or people like that. Um, those were the those were the guys who were super inspiring to me early on. Good, good inspirations, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Um, so, like in your adolescent years or teenage years, did you like ever form like a high school rock band? Oh, yeah, was there anything that. like that? Yeah. What What, what yeah. was the name? What did you play? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I did all that. Uh, I was I was played in orchestra. I played cello in the orchestra in school, and then I had my so that was my classical side of things. And then I played guitar in, in rock bands. Yeah, uh, I think our name was Rio de Janeiro. Yeah, Rio, because we'd been to Brazil at that point, and it was uh, sort of a Zeppelin cover band, I guess, which is pretty pretty hilarious. But it was uh, it was cool, and that was great. Like I really. 
loved uh, for for quite some time, loved playing in, in bands like that. And then that went to college, did the same kind of thing. Well, I always had my one foot in classical, one foot in uh, sort of the more rock and roll world and, and enjoyed the sort of uh, variation between those two worlds and, and being able to sort of inhabit both. Well, that's kind of Led Zeppelin. They have a little bit of classical side to them and then the rock yeah, and roll true. side. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very true. Very true. Yep. That's great. So when did your relationship with the cello begin? When I was nine, um, my, um, we were given an opportunity. We hated violin, my brother and I. So we were given the opportunity to choose an instrument and we chose cello, hoping my mom would let us drop because she'd have to pick us up after school every day because it was a big instrument. We couldn't walk home and she was overjoyed. We chose cello and would uh, happily volunteer to pick us up every day to, to do that. So it kind of backfired on us. But the great thing is like through the cello, I met my greatest teacher ever, which is a woman named Maxine Newman, who's a cellist in New York. And um, as we all know, uh, great teachers make or break, or, or teachers make or break an experience, right? For a kid, you can have a great subject, a bad teacher, and it's just soured for life. And, and she was such an amazing teacher and um, really sort of changed my life. And, and so, yeah, that was sort of a big, big moment for me. And her name's Maxine, right? Yeah, Maxine Newman. Yep. Maxine Newman. Was there any piece of poignant advice Maxine ever gave you that made you change your life, change your way of thinking about life and love in regards to music and people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like great teachers, it's always about more than just the subject you're studying. It's sort of about how that subject uh, applies in the real world. Um, mm -hmm. And so she was very much uh, helping me decide who I was, you know, as a kid and it was through the cello, you know? So it was just like, um, because I think as any musician will tell you, like our personalities show up in the way we, we approach an instrument and, 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 uh, uh, that's why the great players, you know, I think you can listen to a great player and know kind of what they might be like, you know, over a drink or a dinner or something. Right. You know, if, if I listen to someone like Heifetz on the violin, um, I, I enjoy listening to him a lot. He's a master technician, but I can kind of hear in the performance that he's probably not someone I would have wanted to sit down and have dinner with. Uh, maybe a little bit, um, a little bit cool and and reserved and precise. And um, so yeah, I think that's always an interesting thing. So she was just yeah, she was just very much about like um, how how can how can we develop your personal style and show show your personality and identity through your cello playing, yeah. So when you first began the relationship with the cello, was there something you didn't like about it? Like, was it too big and bulky? You had to carry it or did you just like an instant love? I mean, it wasn't an instant love. It was, I guess it was like an instant, like, uh, admission that I, I wanted to sort of get to know this instrument and play it. Uh, and then there's a really wonderful cellist, I think long dead now named Zara Nelsova. Um, and I, I grew up listening to her play the Dvorak cello concerto on a tape I had, cassette tape. And um, so that was a big part of my um, excitement. Like, right, we, again, back to the idea that we all um, see people we admire when we're younger and then strive to imitate them. And, and then in the process, because we're not probably gonna be able to imitate them exactly, we identify our own approach to something. But I really tried hard on the cello. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, 
force of will uh, shows up in my handicaps on the instrument. Like my vibrato is like, I try a little bit too hard with my vibrato. It's not as loose as it should be. And that runs into all sorts of technical problems when I play. So I can, I can go back and, and I can still feel that kid inside me who was trying too hard. And instead of having the patience to sort of develop it and let it become what it was going to become, I, 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 I pushed through it found a workaround and the workaround is maybe not the best way to approach the instrument at all times. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah, yeah. Now, is it true that you got one of the coolest graduation gifts ever with the bagpipes <laughs> and yeah, sub question, yeah. did you just go full ACDC on it? <laughs> <laughs> that was cool. Yeah. I always love the sound of bagpipes. Like some people run when they hear them, uh, I heard them as a kid and just like it, it was so transportive. And so, um, yeah, my parents got me this set of bagpipes made by a guy in Terrytown named Kilgour and Crone, Charlie, uh, Charlie Crone. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I started to learn on a set of those. You start with the practice chanter um, because they're the... Bagpipes are one of those instruments where anyone can listen, but I think very few understand the amount of uh, work that goes into to playing correctly uh, and in the space of a single measure, there might be 42 grace notes that sound like a And if you don't play it right, other bagpipers will know. If you don't play it right to most of the world, they'll have no idea there were even 42 notes in that measure. So it's a, it's a really fascinating instrument um, to learn. Um, and there's also a classical music on the bagpipe. And then there's what's called light music, which would be your jigs and your reels and on all these. And there's also uh, uh, very little awareness of that. So it's just it, it just opened up again yet another musical world that I I loved walking into and figuring out. And um, yeah, it's a fascinating culture of uh, as an instrument. So you're a multi instrumentalist. Uh, you play many instruments. How many instruments can you play? Have you ever counted on your fingers? I mean, I don't. You know, it's funny. Like, I don't really play. Like, I just. I mean, I, I I consider myself a cellist. I consider myself a guitarist. Like, I have some basic level of facility on those two instruments. Bagpipes, kind of, and then I and then there's just like a horde of other instruments that that lend themselves. Right, if I can pick up a cello. I can pick up a gamba. I can pick up some other weird cello-like instrument and, and make a sound with it. If I can play guitar, I can probably figure my way out on a mandolin. Um, that, you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff. So like I, I'm more, I guess as a composer, I'm more concerned with making a sound that's interesting than playing it right or being good at it, you know? Well, you say you pick it up an instrument or something that makes an interesting yeah. sound. Would you say that a Whole Foods container with a rubber band wrapped around it has some really good sounds to it? <laughs> it's funny you say that. Absolutely. Yeah. So you know that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. If you if you snap a rubber band on the lid of a Whole Foods, absolutely. That can have a pitch to it, which is cool. And it is cool. That it's, I mean, there's music all around us all the time, as we know. And then you can make music in all sorts of interesting ways. So it's... Uh, Right. I it's, feel like that's like the Tom Waits essence of his yeah, music yeah, ability. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like he's, he, he is a, certainly an inspiration, like his approach to like making anything a musical instrument in a moment and, and, and making it work, you know, and, and if it sounds a bit outrageous, you know, that's great. That's good. Yeah. So when was that first step taken into the movie world where you're putting this, this new, very important character, the score into a movie? 
I mean, it's funny, like I, I, it, I guess I was in college and I played cello on a couple little short films and um, that was kind of my first experience of, of music and picture. Uh, and I was more concerned with getting the cello performance right. So uh, it was sort of, uh, yeah, it was, it was sort of a different approach as a musician. But um, I mean, I came out here in 96 and I met Hans Zimmer in 97 and sort of, sort of started through him. I was with him for eight months and uh, that was like being thrown in the deep end of the pool in a really good way. And so, uh, yeah, he, he uh, I learned a lot from him, just sort of observing him. And he was generous with letting me write in his room when he wasn't there, which I had asked if, if I could do. Um, and so, yeah, I sort of got a front row seat on a composer um, uh, who was obviously very, very active uh, and very successful. Um, and that was sort of the, the first the first time while I was with him, I began to do some short films and, and figure that out. Um, and then I got an agent while I was there. Uh, one of Hans's other assistants, her, her, it's funny, like her, so I was an assistant to Hans and her boyfriend at the time, now husband was an assistant to Richard Kraft, the film composer's agent. And so we, we both were sort of starting out and, and connected at that point. And I've only had one agent since then. So that's it. That's cool. Was one of the yeah. first movies you worked on, was it Dust Till Dawn 3? Yeah, it's funny. I just had just went to that director's birthday party this past weekend. He's such a good guy, PJ Pesh. Um, yeah, he was one of the first guys I ever worked with. And he was such a, a good guy. And we've kept in touch a bit over the years. And um, he's also very mu musical. He's a musician. He plays guitar. Um, so, yeah, that was one of the first ones. Yeah, it was it was uh, I was had kind of had no idea what I was doing. I was just flying by my gut instinct at that point. And he was nice enough to give me a shot at that. So. No, that's great because I think uh, Robert Rodriguez is very musical too, and he did the first film. And, exactly. exactly. Uh, now yeah. it's you know the directors. There's something about filmmakers and music. I think that a lot of directors either take up an instrument or love music. I think. Mm -hmm. Have you your experience working with filmmakers and directors? Do you find that common? I mean, yeah, there are some absolutely with some people like Eli Roth is not a musician, but loves music, knows music. Alan Ball, same thing, not a musician, but but loves music. Um, and then there are definitely the, the, the few filmmakers who I mean, the problem I, I think we all joke as composers, like there are some directors who know just enough about music to be dangerous and annoying, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but, but, but there are also some who uh, who who know music really well. Um, but I think that to me, and I think probably most composers would agree, the best directors direct using emotion. They want they talk to you about the emotion, not the instrument. I mean, certainly if they don't like the sound of something, they tell us. But but if they're talking about the emotional core of a scene and how how to get there, that they leave the rest to us. So yeah. And I love that you've worked a lot in the, in genre in in mm -hmm. horror, mm -hmm. and you know everything from The Last Exorcism to Cabin Fever, Hostel, and um, even uh, one of the Lost Boys sequels, which is excellent. <laughs> um, I mean, these are like iconic movies, and so you know, going through because it's known, I believe, or for those who don't know, I think Nathan has an impressive collection of just strange instruments uh, around, whether it be kind of like uh, a glass harmonica, a human bone trumpet, gourd cello, stuff like that. 
I got to imagine trying to find the most haunting or interesting eclectic sound from one of these. What's your process like when going into kind of like a haunting score for horror? Yeah, I mean, I've just, uh, yeah, so I did, um, I've done a couple. I've been doing a lot more outside horror lately, which has been great. Um, but I do love horror films. I have Saturday Night Horror Nights where we, friends get together. We watch every single Saturday a horror film. Even through the pandemic, I had two friends who like were in the bubble and got together every Saturday. Uh, so I love the genre. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I mean, the with horror, you can kind of throw the, throw anything at it. And if it works and it's scary, it, it's, it's going in, you know? Uh, it's uh, there's you have access to the uh, palette of instruments and sounds which probably far transcends your palette on a drama or 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 something that's a little bit more grounded um so yeah no i, I love it um and uh, this we haven't spoken about it yet but the pipe organ i have i've been using that a lot in horror um and i have the, a couple of, the whirlitzer right yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. So, let me let me is it it's 1366 pipes yeah yeah exactly oh my yeah we have to get into this warlitzer thing because this thing is just holy shit impressive (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it's really cool it's uh it's a piece of hollywood history that was forgotten about in a lot of ways um so back in the 20s um warner brothers universal paramount uh, Fox, all of them had a pipe organ on their scoring stages at their studios. That was just something. If you had a scoring stage in Hollywood, you had a pipe organ on it. That was that was sort of like a, a part of it. Like you'd have your your console or your microphones. You had a pipe organ. Uh, and then as uh, silent film transitioned to um, sound film, uh, those pipe organs were quickly thrown out. Warner Brothers lost theirs in the fifties. Paramount, I don't even know when they lost theirs. Uh, Universal uh, had its more recently. I think Universal's left in the past ten years or something. It was a Robert Morton pipe organ. Um, anyhow, these were like you, you hear all these in these great movies. So this particular Wurlitzer I have is what you hear in The Sound of Music when she gets married. Um, and then uh, Bernard Herrmann used it in Day of Sit Still and Journey to the Center of the Earth, among many others. Jerry Goldsmith used it maybe more than anyone. Uh, tons of movies. Uh, John Williams as well used it multiple times. Let's see, um, Home Alone, uh, The Fury, uh, Empire of the Sun, uh, tons of tons of uh, tons of movies. So um, it it's just a really cool part of the musical culture of of Golden Age Hollywood. And this instrument was pulled out of Fox in '97 in March, and it went to the gentleman who took care of it as a kid. His dad was an organ restorer. Uh, and so they took care of it through the 60s and 70s, I think. Um, and then he sat on it until I came along. And then uh, did you just it. hear about it? Did you, did you just like, was I it did. like an ad in like Craigslist? Like, yeah, organ yeah, for sale? No. <laughs> it's such a huge instrument. No, you know, it's I, I became obsessed when I you mentioned Hemlock Grove. So that's another thing I did with Eli. Um, he produced that. Um, so uh, Eli uh, brought me out of that show. And in the first episode of the pilot, I kind of just had this flash back to this. There's a crazy museum in Wisconsin, which Steven certainly knows about, called uh, House on the Rock. Uh, and it's stuffed full of really odd collections of this man who passed away quite a while ago. But he collected full-size carousels. He collected 
you know, coins, like anything you can imagine he collected. And one of the things he collected was mechanical musical instruments from the early 20th century. It comes to, uh, now I understand, having done a lot of research, they were actually all fake. Uh, none of them really ever worked. Um, but uh, I started collecting along those lines and that there's some correlation between that world and the pipe organ world. So I wanted to build a studio that was special. As we know, studios all over the world are closing. And part of the way for me to distinguish the studio, other than having a great sounding room and a unique space was to, to try and put a pipe organ in and just bring back that tradition. And so, yeah, in the first three years it's been up, you know, Danny Elfman's used it. Um, uh, the Dana brothers used it in the Adams family. Uh, Michael Zucchino used it. Uh, Teddy Shapiro. Um, uh, there are quite a few composers who have used it. Um, so it feels great to get that sort of back into the rotation of, of film music. No, that's cool. How uh, long was the restoration process and to actually input it into this uh, amazing studio you crafted? Yeah, I mean, it was like five years. So it was a five-year restoration. You know, if you figure it's 13, over 1,300 pipes. So every pipe has at least three to four components to it. So the amount of work on one pipe, whether it's 16 feet long or six inches long is a lot. So it, right. it took a whole team of people. And then we worked off the original blueprints from Fox, which I got access to because the guy who sold me the organ had them. As, and as I built this space, he was restoring the instrument. Uh, and so it was really, uh, yeah, it was an amazing learning experience. I only had an inkling when I first bought it of the amount of work, cost, effort that would go into actually getting it right. Mm -hmm. um, but it's been such a great payoff. I mean, it's such an amazing instrument and I use it constantly. I sneak it in everywhere. So <laughs> That's great. Do you remember what the, the test song was when it was all done and built? Was there a test I like, mean, I'm going to play this? The coolest thing, well, you know, I don't play. It's funny. I mean, I can sit down and make some noise, but um, the coolest thing, I wish we'd had time. I was doing House of the Clock on its Walls with Eli and we were having orchestra sessions like a week later and the organ had just gone in and we were racing to get it tuned so we could have it uh, recorded. But the coolest thing was like when the, all the pipes are set in place on their, on their chests where they go and we fired it up and it was totally out of tune. And that was, I wish I'd had a couple of weeks to sample that because a pipe organ of that size in that state is just incredible. I mean, it was like the most amazing sounds ever. Um, you know, nothing tonal, right? You know, it was just like a, a big mess, but there was the, the, the chaos and cacophony. I, I so wish we had the time to do it right, but it takes five days. It took five days to tune at that point. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah. And that to get that sort of first round of tuning done and, um, but no, it was amazing. Uh, and, and then House of the Clock and its Walls, the end title was one of the first things recorded on it. That entire end title is on the Wurlitzer. And I'm about to start a movie with Eli called Borderlands. And um, oh, based can, on the video game, right? Yep. And I can guarantee that that is going to have some pipe organ. Eli is super into the pipe organ too. Uh, he's, he was a big fan of it. So I think we'll sneak that in. Or we won't even sneak that in. We will hit people in the face with that instrument. <laughs> <laughs> good 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 i, I like i like the, <clears throat> the that yeah. sound as well 
Um, so let's get into a little bit of the non-genre stuff. Like I know you did The Hunt, you did Uncle Frank, which by far it was excellent. Um, and then uh, I want to talk about the new this new Netflix show that's been on for a few weeks called Halston, which is amazing. Uh, just one of one of my favorite miniseries in a while, and the music in it is just outstanding. Standing. Um, can you look, talk a little bit about how your approach for Halston um, and got got that role? Yeah, I mean, like I so let's see, I, two years ago, I got a call from Alexis Woodall, who's Ryan Murphy's head of his company, mm-hmm. and she said, "I'm a big fan of your work. I've been wanting to work with you for a while." Um, and so she brought me on board Hollywood, uh, which I did last year. Um, and, uh, that was a really positive experience. Um, and so Halston was next and, um, it was a little out of my comfort zone. So I, we've talked about Steven. So Steven was a, a part of, uh, my approach to, to the show. Um, and, uh, it was going to be more synth based. Um, and so that was really, um, uh, um, yeah, it was just really interesting to walk in those shoes. And the Ryan Murphy camp is incredibly um, concerned with and and dedicated to the idea of melody, strong melody. Uh, and then it's about instrumentation. And so, yeah, it was it was sort of like a whole. Um, there, there are two major melodies for Halston. There's like his sort of super complex. In the first episode, there's a scene where he's sort of inventing himself. He's bronzing himself, hair, the uh, turtleneck, sunglasses. That's his image. And so the, that's where we hear the theme the first time. And then there's his dad, what we call his daddy theme, which is like he was always looking for a father figure uh, and in the process sort of being betrayed uh, in business. Um, and there was a theme associated with that too. And then the synth parts that, that, that uh, so the instrumentation of that was, Stephen was really helpful with. Um, and we get, we, Stephen and I have such a nice uh, uh, a friendship, that, both in music and outside music, which is, which is always so great, so. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I loved how the score had a, a haunted element to it because of his character, but also very mm-hmm. redeeming, very triumphant, um, very inspiring quality quality to it, such as mm-hmm. the track only takes one person. Mm-hmm. It's kind of got kind of like that almost like organ sound, but also has like a heartbeat, but it's mm-hmm. it kind of grows and crescendos into something very inspiring from a haunting mm-hmm. place. I mean, that's what I got from it. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. That is one of those tracks and that's the Halston theme. And um, yeah, I mean, he was an incredibly complicated, tortured man. And uh, that that sort of um, contradiction uh, and the war between commerce and creativity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 the allure of making as much money as he did, but at the cost of his vision and his ability to retain creative control. So yeah, the music was kind of about that. And then there's a he it was a he sort of had a you know pretty um, tragic life ultimately, right? Right. Like he, he sort of sold his his creativity down the river for for money and and lost the ability to use his own name, which. Uh, was so tragic and then uh you know um partied like a you know motherfucker (laughs) yes and and and, you know ultimately paid the consequences for that um right right he did Uh, but i also love a track called something great because it is something great and (laughs) what i got from it it's kind of like the true 
embodiment of almost like an 80s but it mixes like the best of queen and the best mm -hmm. of like goblin and it's just like <laughs> so funny. badass can you like that's talk so a little funny. bit about like kind of what's what what's what i thought when i heard it <laughs> it's like oh, yeah man, yeah i'm trying to you know it's funny like sometimes we come up with titles for the soundtrack which aren't titles so i gotta remember what something great is as far as the the track but i mean i can speak to the larger palette of everything um you know electric piano for him was like perfect like sort of the perfect sound uh sort of um with that slight vibrato on it um and, and i think um the synth stuff like uh, uh Moroder, Giorgio Moroder was a was a reference from Alexis Woodall, who's who's very uh educated musically. She's she's got a huge musical knowledge and is very uh, very much a part of um steering and guiding the process. It was the case in Hollywood, certainly the case in Halston as well. Um so yeah, it was um uh wanted to be rooted in the 80s and yet the songs, right? There's some great songs throughout the show. Which really, which really played to the time that 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 we were in. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was just all about the emotional journey. That was the most important thing for the score was just to to constantly keep a bead on what was really going on for him with subtext as as the as the show continued. Right, right. And is it true that one of the last uh, elements to putting a film or television show together um, is the score? And was Halston, was it a full collaborative process? Did, were you working directly with the director or was it like, here's the show, free reign? And what, which do you prefer? What method do you prefer? Yeah, definitely not free reign. Like, like the, so basically with Ryan Murphy, I've never met him, talked to him, nothing. I don't, I don't know who the man is, but Alexis Woodall is his right hand. And she, she does, she basically takes picture and shepherds it to the finish line with her team of editors, composer, whoever else. And she's amazing. Like she's incredibly inspiring, um, incredibly motivated and dedicated to music and, and it's, it's a role in, in getting a show to the finish line and, and, and what it needs to be. Um, so, you know, with, with, with uh, I think as composers, we can be precious about our music sometimes. And with her and with Ryan Murphy, you just got to let that go. Like just you write your music and then know that they're going to find the best place for it um, that works best for them. So I've definitely like in Hollywood, there were more than a couple of times where a theme I wrote for another character ended up under another different character it was never intended for because they just loved the way it worked in that moment. That might seem like a crisis to a composer on another show, but you kind of just let it go and like, it's just a wild ride and they, they get it there, you know, they get it where they, they want it to be. So um, it's uh, there, there are, you know, positives and negatives to, to every, every approach. Um, but certainly there's um, uh, there are, there's an understanding and a commitment to music, which makes for a very tight collaboration. And there are definitely guardrails throughout the whole process that you're not always aware of. <laughs> Sometimes you, <laughs> You try and turn and get swapped back in, but it's it's a it's a really interesting process because the music I get at the end is is something I wouldn't have written otherwise. It's it's uh, yeah, it's cool. That that is awesome. Um, and what in in regard not just in regards to Halston, but with everything you do, what is the relationship with you in digital versus analog? Do you love e both equally? Do you prefer doing one over the other or working with one over the other? 
In terms of like, you mean recording process or? Yes, recording yeah. and yes. Uh, I mean, I'm definitely like a more analog, organic uh, approach kind of guy, I think. Um, um, I certainly recognize and use all of the digital tools that are at our disposal these days as a composer. But for me, even if I am going to get into the computer and start using plugs and or, uh, or, or, or other things, I like to start with an analog synth, sorry, analog sound going into a microphone into the system. So as long as I can start with something tactile uh bow on a string or a plucked string or the organ pipe or something like that that sort of that makes sense to me in my head as a composer so i want to start there and then depart from there um uh just a different philosophy from other composers who are more mod modular synth they'd like to start with a sine wave and then go from there just sort of a different approach but yeah analog to me there's something that uh that i can plug into emotionally that i find harder to do if it's straight digital all right yeah, i like that i like it uh, analog here as well i do like the digital <laughs> aspect elements to it but then analog yeah. all the way like the instruments. yeah absolutely yeah and as we as we know like so many uh plugins and tools these days are all about trying to recreate that thing in the analog world that we've lost right times, right you know so yeah so, and it's gotten amazingly close i remember uh a really wonderful mix engineer um from Abbey Road, Peter Cobham, uh, he said for years and years and years, the plugs were never quite getting there. And within the past five to seven years, he finally heard digital versions of analog gear and was like, that's it. You guys have figured it out. It's, it's, I can't tell the difference. So that's interesting. That's cool. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So Growing up in music, you had your rock band, Rio de Janeiro, Led Zeppelin <laughs> cover band, into the music. And then some years later, is it true you got to work with Pete Townsend from The Who and Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top? Yeah, yeah, totally. Those were really fun collaborations. Yes, on season two of The Americans, 10th episode, uh, they were looking for something to up the profile of the show in all departments because it got sort of ignored, the Americans season one, uh, by the awards and I think everything. And I mean, it's, it is, uh, obviously I'm biased, but it is such an extraordinary show. I love that show, um, everything about it. I love the process, the people, the storytelling. The, and so um, they said, well, let's, what, what can we do musically to sort of create a really cool collaboration? And uh, they said, Nate, what if we get like a sort of a rock star to like co-write something with, with you? Uh, and I thought, well, yeah, that's awesome. And so we all threw out a bunch of names and Pete Townsend's management replied that Pete was like a fan of mine, which blew my mind and, and knew the show and loved the show. And so we, uh, they hooked us up with a phone call and that was just surreal, right? You know, as a kid <laughs> playing that playing his music and then like getting that call at my house on a early morning from the UK. And we had a really lovely conversation. Uh, and he, he's a really, uh, incredible guy. And, uh, so yeah, we, we, we wrote a song together, uh, for that episode. Um, it's, it's called, it must be done. It's during an assassination scene. And, um, it just, it works really well to picture. Like it's just, I remember the director, not knowing we had written it for the, for the scene somehow and watching it and going, God, it's like this was written for the scene. And so uh, and then he found out about the whole collaboration. But yeah, no, it was, those, 
Yeah, I mean, Pete's an icon, right? So right. it's sort of incredible. And Billy Gibbons, too. Billy and I worked together first in 2005 on Dukes of Hazard, that movie. And uh, and then we stayed in touch over the years. We did something together on The Sun, uh, another show I did at AMC a couple years ago, uh, which is in sort of, uh, unfortunately, it was a short-lived show because I thought it was a really good show. But um, uh, those guys are, yeah, Billy is, you know, uh, as iconic as, as Pete. Like, they're just, uh, and then what I love about their guitar playing style is they both um, have a couple things that identify them, like, immediately right? Mm -hmm. As a guitarist, like there's a swagger to Billy's playing. He loves using his thumb with the guitar pick to get the sort of harmonic, false harmonic. Like there's just that. And then, and then they've both written these iconic riffs, right? That, that <laughs> yeah. a part of the musical history now. So yeah, it was awesome. Is, was there a time where you got to like dueling guitars with any of them? I mean, there was like, uh, not quite like Pete and I didn't meet until after the process. I was in London. We had lunch, which is great. Um, uh, so that was just remotely, but Billy and I, yeah, we're in the same room together. And like, I remember this boss hog theme I wrote for Dukes of Hazzard and I, I, I was sitting there teaching him the part and I was just sitting there like, what is happening right now? <laughs> I'm teaching uh, Billy something yeah, to play. <laughs> Billy. And he goes, you wrote that? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, it's a, it's a fine riff. <laughs> That's when cool. you knew. Yeah. Was, there, was, was, that, was there like a moment in your life, I guess not including that one, where your kind of your soul escaped your body? You're like, holy shit, I'm really good at this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think all, like any of those, uh, any of those moments where you see someone and you're, you're interacting with someone musically, you really look up to and they sort of accept you and, and, uh, get what you do uh is a special moment and those were yeah those were two of those moments for sure and then honestly like you know early on Hans like he uh totally inadvertently heard a piece of mine one week when I was working in a studio and he he thought it was really good and and uh and that that too so yeah we looked right we looked to the people we admire and for for affirmation and and when we get it it's it's really uh empowering so that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, I have a very important question for you now. Very, very, very serious question. Yeah. Um, what type of music and what songs do your two glorious pups enjoy the most? <laughs> you know, it's funny. They like go into this weird, whatever the organ's playing, they go into the stage on the stage and, and start like fake fighting each other. <laughs> It's the weirdest thing. So there's definitely, there's definitely some sort of response they have physically to the to the organ, the vibrations in the room and the, the air pressure changing. And yeah, they go into this little, they become like these little, uh, you know, 300 gladiators, you know, whenever the organ's playing, it's kind of funny, so. Oh, that <laughs> seems like it's like a good uh, little Instagram video weekly series. Yeah, yeah. I, I, do, I do need to do that. Yeah, it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's very funny. That's great. I'm glad they like the the big Wurlitzer. That's, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. What, what are their names? Billy and Muppet. Billy and Muppet. Amazing. <laughs> Billy and Muppet. I like it. I like yeah, it. The little studio Bandrika mascots here. They uh, Yeah. That's good. That's good. Um, you, what do you say we get into some real fun questions? Sure. All Let's right. Let's do it. Let's do it um, and take your time. Uh, but what is the most thrilling music experience you've ever had both on stage conducting and working and as a fan, mainly meaning 
like front right. row tickets at a concert or something right. like that. Yeah, I can come up with them immediately. Uh, one was like uh, when I was, this is so many years ago, I was doing college auditions and I, I had my first sort of out of body musical experience where I was, um, I was playing a cello suite, a Bach cello suite for an audition for a scholarship. And um, yeah, I just like left my body. It was the bizarrest thing. I left my body and I was, I was watching, I was hearing myself play, but detached from actually playing it. And it was terrifying. And yet like, whoa, what is happening? This is amazing. And uh, I think it's like, yeah, when you step out of your body and you become an observer, it's hard to, hard to describe, but that was certainly one of the most amazing experiences because I, I, I knew the piece so well. I felt freed from all of the worries of, oh, what's next note-wise and how am I going to play that? And I just got to listen as a, as a audience member as opposed to the performer. And I, we've, we've heard many stories of musicians who talk about that state, state of mind. Um, and it was really cool. And then in terms of, uh, I mean, the first time I saw Jimmy Page play guitar, he was on his Outrider tour, which uh, in the 80s. And, and just finally, I, after the years I spent watching him in Song Remains the Same or these other uh, uh, concert footage playing, to actually see him in the flesh playing uh, was pretty mind-blowing. It was just right. awesome. Yeah. And then, and then I saw Yo-Yo Ma play the Bach Cello Suites when I was a kid. Um, he played all six of them um, over the course of a you know three three and a half hour concert at Carnegie Hall, and that was that was also an incredible experience. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I've got I've got to interject one of my most thrilling because you kind of mentioned something similar earlier yeah. when yeah. you were talking about the Wurlitzer, and you loved that sound yeah. where it was all chaos and whatnot. So one of my most thrilling music experiences is the first time I saw John Williams conduct yeah, nice. orchestra, yeah. but it wasn't that it was the band tuning up beforehand. It just <laughs> yeah. all the crazy yes. sounds and how they yes. all crescendoed and that like yeah. just killed me. I was like, Oh yeah, yeah. man, this was amazing. So that all the chaotic sounds of the percussion and the tempo, exciting. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's an exciting moment. Yeah. That yeah. is, it was really cool, really cool. Uh, great, great moments. Um, what is the most curious recording you own, like strangest, like whether it be like something, like an outtake from something you recorded or even like a, like a, a record album that you own that's just so strange and curious? Well, you know, there, I don't remember who the composer is, but there was, I was introduced to a recording years ago. Of, it was a homeless man uh singing in the street and someone set it to orchestra orchestra and it's on a loop and you hear it probably 30 times throughout the performance it's a song about jesus <laughs> it's like this religious song this guy's singing and he's drunk hobo in the street and this composer and again i don't remember who it was set it to orchestra and it's extraordinarily beautiful and bizarre Wow. Is it like, yeah. is it available to listen to like on anything? I, I would just Google like um, homeless man singing orchestra. The composer is like a known sort of classical composer. Okay. Uh, and he just was so transfixed by hearing this guy singing over and over again that he created a piece around it. And that, that's, that's pretty, I'd say that's a pretty unusual piece. Oh yeah. That, I got to listen to this yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Totally. <laughs> All right. Um, is there beauty that you find in unexpected places in relationship to music? 
Oh, everywhere, all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the the mistakes, right? Like there's beauty in mistakes. Uh and 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 uh if you're if you're playing a piece and you mess it up, um um there, there can be uh, you can look at it as oh you know you, you screwed it up, but no, I think there's there's so much beauty and then so many composers I think would be willing to admit that like there are some great things that they've come up with that are based on mistake. So yeah, I think there's beauty in mistake. Uh and 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 there's so much to be harvested from mistakes. Okay. Okay. Uh, do yeah. do you happen to have an example of that? I mean it happens all the time. Uh let me think of that. Um I mean I've I've I, I can't think of a specific one right now, but there are times where I've like dropped um something on an instrument and it's bounced on a couple of strings and, and it's like, Oh, that was an interesting little melody there, you know, and then I'll take it and run with it. You know, that stuff, I get stuff just as a part of the process for composers. Right. It's just like you, we all improvise and find our way to, a, to a melody or a piece and um, the mistake is a part of the process. So, yeah. Cool. 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 Oh yeah. I can think of a mistake. Actually. All right that turned into something really cool in the great the show I do for Hulu. Right. Um, there's a really cool, I think really cool boy soprano part. Um, and it, it's totally um, using the sample in the wrong way. But I, I was just messing around writing stuff and I dragged the track down to get it out of the way and forgot to mute it. And so it ended up playing this patch, this boy soprano patch. And the minute I heard it, I got chills. I'm like, that is amazing. So I took that and that became her theme, like one of her themes, like her calling to, to, to lead, the, lead Russia. That literally became <laughs> the tag. And that was a total mistake, you know? That's great. That's awesome. Yeah, and, yeah. and with that, do you get to name the tracks? And is there any rhyme or reason or like any like inside jokes that go into the naming of tracks? I mean, there, we always tried to come up with like the most, um, my, my f good friend, Brian, who Richards, who passed away, he was a music editor. He used to come up with the most outrageous tracks, <laughs> name, names that he could. And to this day, I think he has the best one. It was from, from Dust Till Dawn, as we talked about before. And the name of the track was that he came up with was uh, Virgin Mary Vampire Fucker. <laughs> <laughs> And so that, that became that track. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, also, are there any particular moments of music in film that stick out to you? Like, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, can you clarify a bit more in terms of like other people's scores? As yeah, so like some of my favorites would probably be Jerry Goldsmith in the 80s movie, The Explorers, when they're building the tilt-a-whirl, you know? Mm -hmm. That song, that that piece of music is just, it, it gets yeah. you amped up, like you're just yeah, like in yeah. it. Or something like Dave Grusin in The Goonies, you know, even the water slide or the, the Fratelli oh, yeah, chase, totally. something like that. Yeah. You know, are there any particular moments I mean, of so music. many, so many, especially as a film composer, so many impossible to count. Uh, I mean, off the top of my head, um, an interesting one, The Third Man, Anton Karas. Uh, one of my favorite movies. Yep. And, 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 and an entire of huge inspiration to me as a composer, the score, you know, it's all on a zither. 
And it's just one great tune in a million different ways on that instrument. So that stands out to me. I mean, in, in such a great way. Speaking of Dave Grusin, like his score to uh, The Firm, you know, I just love his score to The Firm. There's like a little bit of melodrama to our ears today and his love theme for for uh, Tom Cruise and uh, is it Triple Horn, uh, uh, the actress? Um, oh, yeah. Did you need Triple, Triple Horn? Horn. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, but it's such a beautiful melody. Like, And the score, that's been a huge inspiration to me for the Americans, like the way he used... I mean, that's another score that's entirely one instrument. It's just piano. And he played so beautifully on that. So um, I, I like I like when composers achieve a lot with very little. Um, I think it's it's um, uh, obviously it's impressive to throw a 150 piece ensemble at a at a at a scene. But but there's something so beautiful to just the simplicity of uh, one or two instruments really plugging into a scene. Um, right. But That's yeah. what, uh, yeah, I like, uh, such as, for an example, maybe the original Candyman theme, just that little piece <laughs> of, you know, piano that did it, right, right. there's so yeah. much told in that. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's totally. So <laughs> yeah, John Williams, uh, Munich, like he, yes. came up, he came up with this amazing beat. There's a scene where one of the people who they're going to assassinate is walking down the street in the rain with an umbrella. Mm -hmm. And he just comes up with this propulsive sort of boom, 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 boom under it. And it just got, gave me chills when I saw it. Like there, he's such a master of that, of just like, you know, finding those. I mean, it, to me, he works, people criticize him. Well, you can, it's so traditionally rips off other composers and all this stuff. But if you, if you really listen to what he does for a scene and how many things he does for a scene, it's it's on a whole other level from 99% of the, those of us who do this. Like it's just, <laughs> it really is incredible. Like you, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of unbelievable. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. But um, I mean, a hundred, I have hundreds and hundreds of those moments over the years, you know, just great scenes that have been inspiring for sure. So, yeah. That's yeah. We could go on for hours on that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, now to piggyback off that question or that, yeah. that, that music thing, are there any particular scenes in general that always stuck with you that you wake up and you think about this scene, not necessarily musically, but for, just for a film? scene in a movie? For films? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I have like uh, those movies over there, like Captain's Courageous uh, with uh, Spencer Tracy, Freddie Bartholomew. That's probably a movie I've seen more than any other in my life. And there are so many amazing scenes in there. Um, just seeing where uh, Manuel Spencer Tracy's character is playing a hurdy-gurdy up on the deck and he and the boy have this incredible sort of father-son connection as, as that's happening. Uh, I mean, that's a scene, um, uh, Treasure Island, uh, also directed by Victor Fleming, by the way, who was like the Spielberg of, you know, the golden age of Hollywood kind of. Um, uh, Treasure Island, there are just so many amazing scenes in there between you know, this, this really sweet, innocent boy and this bastard pirate, you know, <laughs> I was just watching that recently again. And like, it's kind of a crazy story because long John silver is the same horrible manipulative person at the end of the movie <laughs> that he is at the beginning. The right. Kid has, has, it's sort of the death of innocence in this kid who like w looks up to this guy through the betrayal and and somehow at the end is still betrayed 
and 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 yet is sad to see it end. So that those those scenes are really powerful. Just sort of that dynamic between two people. That's um, great. Yeah, yeah. So. That's wonderful. I like I like those. I like that you getting all the 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 older films out there, the ones that yeah, the yeah. yeah I like that. Yeah. Um, and I've noticed that because you, what is your most prized? movie poster that you own and most prized uh besides the Wurlitzer instrument <laughs> that you own yeah I mean like I have uh so in my studio I, I do have a pretty big movie poster collection yep and the, the posters I love most are the ones I collect these really large posters uh from the 20s uh of uh, by a company called Morgau M-O-R-G-A-U they're mm -hmm. they were they made these posters back then and um, the posters I collect at that scale are for movies that are gone. They're lost. Mm -hmm. um, nothing exists. And the reason I chose those posters, aesthetically, they're beautiful, but they also kind of represent what would have happened to the Wurlitzer if I hadn't found it and restored it. it the guy who I bought it from just passed away a year ago. Uh, I don't know where this organ, it, it could have been thrown out, you know, tossed out or seized by bankruptcy court or something. Um, I, I don't know what would have happened, but... Um, I like the idea that this art is all we have left of a project that clearly, uh, people put a lot into creatively, you know, that's cool. So, yeah. So that was a poster and yet you have an instrument besides, instrument. The uh, I mean, gosh, there's so many, like if I had to grab, I mean, I, I have a cello that I, uh, kind of invented and, 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 um, uh built uh with a, a maker a luthier up in santa cruz it's called a sympathetic drone cello that would probably be the one i would grab if i if the building was burning down <laughs> it's hard to grab the organ <laughs> right yeah but uh that that would be the one that's a favorite instrument just because it's like something i sort of dreamed up and then found a luthier crazy and brilliant enough to to make it happen and you use do you use that in your work yeah, everywhere. Yep, a lot. Yep, it's got a it's got a mechanical drone on it um, with a motor. So you actually press a pedal and it spins a wheel, which which plays the strings, and then you can improvise over the drone that's created. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Nathan Barr, for coming on the show, Celebrity Hour podcast. Uh, it was a joy talking with you. Uh, the spotlight's on you now. You can tell all the listeners, all the viewers, where to find you online, if you so please. And if you want to do sure. it in the vein of your favorite pro wrestler, more kudos. <laughs> <laughs> I, funny, I, I, you know, I don't. I did a, a documentary about pro wrestling. Oh, beyond, beyond, the, beyond the, mat. the mat, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm big into pro wrestling, and damn it, I can't believe I forgot to talk about that because that was one of your first things, and that doc yeah. is great. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because music is a very important part of pro wrestling with entrance music and composers coming up with new entrance themes. But yeah, you know, I don't, it's funny. I don't know the world at all. Like I know it through that documentary, <laughs> but I got to appreciate it. Like I didn't realize that people are actually seriously hurting themselves in service <laughs> of entertainment, you know? Right. And, uh, Jake the Snake Roberts and all these people I'd never heard of before. And, you know, yeah, Barry Blaustein is the director and he continues to be a very dear friend of mine. Uh, and he's a massive pro wrestling fan, you know? Uh, so yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So in terms of uh, me, you can find me on my website, nathanbar.com, uh, composer bar at uh, uh, Instagram and, and Facebook. And um, yeah, that's, that's sort of where I'm, 
uh, updating as much as I have time for. <laughs> Sweet. Yes. And check out Halston, check out all the stuff. Is there anything to look for you in the future? Yeah, I just uh, finished a film called Kate on Netflix, which is a really amazing movie uh, about an assassin in Japan uh, with uh, Woody Harrelson uh, and uh, Mary Elizabeth. Um, oh, what's her name? Oh, my gosh. Winstead? Winstead. Thank you. I just blanked. Who, by the way, is Ewan McGregor's partner in life. Yes. So I need to do Halston and Kate. So that's called Kate. She's amazing in it. It's an amazing film. Uh, and then a, a, a film at Lionsgate called The Devil's Light, which I just finished. Borderlands, obviously, uh, very excited about Eli's next film coming out. And then Carnival Row season two uh, and The Great season two. Those are all sort of upcoming projects. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Brian. Great talking to you. Great talking with you.